As it's been a while since we've been looking at Romans, let me take a few minutes to remind you of where we are so far uh, in our study. Chapter 1, Paul begins the letter by introducing his thesis for the whole letter. And he says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. Right at the start of chapter 1, as it were, he nails his colors to the mast. He puts out there that he is not ashamed of the gospel that he believes in. And in the second half of chapter 1, he tells why the world needs the gospel. And it's for the simple reason that humanity has turned its back on God, their creator, who has made them in his image and who are already living under his judgment as he gives them over to depraved thinking and behavior. So that's what Paul opens up first in chapter 1. And moving into chapter 2, in the first half of the chapter, Paul speaks of how the moralists, those who judge others according to their own standards, will ultimately face God's judgment. He tells of a few things about what this judgment will be like. And he concludes the chapter by showing how being religious won't save you from God's judgment either. No matter who we are, we will all be judged. And then moving into chapter 3, verses 1 to 20, we looked at one night. It starts with Paul stating that there is every advantage to being a Jew. He's writing to a Jewish community, and we'll think about that in a moment. The Jews were entrusted with the word of God, the gospel. And they had been charged to share it with the world. They instead had kept it for themselves and saw their task as keeping the message to themselves and being an exclusive people group. And he moves on to stress that our sinfulness does not make God look good, for God hates sin. And in the latter verses, 9 to 20, he once again shows the human condition. And in these verses, he views sin in three ways. The ungodliness of sin, the pervasiveness of sin, and the universality of sin. And there is caution needed that we don't slip into thinking that the things we do can earn favor with God. Paul sums this up by stating that the law only exists to make us conscious of sin. The law does not exist as a way of getting us to God, but to make us conscious of sin. And then verse 21 onwards in chapter 3. Paul says, but now a righteousness from God has been made known. If you had been with us over the few weeks leading up to the middle of November, you'll remember that this was the turning point. This is when we all got the smiles on our faces because the truth was coming true of, of what we'd hoped for, this hope, the truth that God, a righteousness from himself had been made known. And this righteousness is apart from the law, but, a testifi- sorry, but testified to by the law and the prophets. So it was something that was for our hope, that God was making a way and providing a way, that God's grace was going to be enough and sufficient for everything, that we were justified by faith in the one God. And so we come to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, these uh, verses that we read and the later verses in the chapter, Paul is presenting to us a sermon He sat down and he has put together a sermon or an exposition of a verse from Genesis. 
For Paul, the question of being made righteous by God comes from the example of Abraham, one of the patriarchs, the father of the nation. And so he takes Genesis 15, verse 6, as his text for this sermon that he offers us. Genesis 15, 6 says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. So before seeing what Paul says in this sermon that he offers, let's see what the community was like to which he was writing and understanding the context. So he's writing to a church in Rome. It's right there in the heart of the empire. It's a church that is made up of converted Jews. They are Jewish Christians. So the likelihood is that they continue to worship in synagogues around uh, Rome. That is where their place of worship is. And then they'll gather outside of synagogue meeting and they'll have little house groups where they'll come and study the Old Testament and they'll also receive the letters from the apostles and their teaching. Acts 2 verse 10 indicates that there was certainly a small community growing in Rome because there are accounts of Romans on the day of Pentecost um, as they come to Jerusalem and hear Peter. So there's certainly a growing number of Christians in Rome. So you have a group of Christians coming from a strong Jewish background and bringing all of their Jewish theology with them. And they were also a church that was facing persecution as a Jew and as a Christian. And one of the interesting things that we looked at away at the start is that Paul doesn't address this as he addresses his other letters to churches. He doesn't say to the church in Rome, but instead to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So he's writing this letter that together and individually they'll be able to take it on board because Paul wants to clear out the rubbish. He wants to clear out what has been such a natural transition from Judaism to Christianity. Because in Christianity, they see everything of their Jewish religion. Everything that they've known. The patriarch Abraham, the law of Moses, the king David, the wisdom of Solomon, all the prophets. They bring with them. And with that, they bring what has been ingrained since the moment they could understand what was being said to them. They bring their Jewish traditions with them. So Paul wants to get rid of what is baggage, of what no longer is true theology for this growing Christian church. So he wants to tackle issues of faith. And the main issue that he wants to talk about is justification. Justification is God's act of declaring or making a sinner righteous before himself. And so Paul takes these Christians to a passage and to a story that is so familiar to them. He takes them to Abraham to teach them that Christians are justified by faith and nothing else. So to help us work through this passage this evening, I'm going to carve it up into five sections that hopefully will be chunks for us to digest and understand what Paul is trying to say to us. And so the first section in verses 1 to 8 deals with Abraham. He introduces it all by explaining a little bit about Abraham. The thinking of the Jews and many of these new Christian or Jewish Christians held that Abraham's actions recorded in the book of Genesis defined members 
of the true people of God. So if you claim to be of the line and family that came from Abraham, in other words, the Jewish nation, well, then you were gods because you were following in this vein. They pointed to a few things in Abraham's life. They pointed to a circumcision in Genesis 17 as a sign of God's promise-keeping. And they also looked to Genesis 22 and his obedience and his willingness to sacrifice Isaac as being completely open before God and willing to do whatever God had asked. And to these actions, the Jewish theologians over many years had added the law of Moses. So they'd got the circumcision of Abram. They'd got the uh, willingness of Abraham to give up Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice. And now the law, the law of Moses, they added to this. And this was the true test, the litmus test of being a true Jew. These were non-negotiables of what it meant to be the people of God. And in verse 3, Paul makes it clear that there was only one thing that made Abraham righteous before God, and that was his faith in God. Not his circumcision, not his obedience to sacrifice Isaac as an example of, being, of Abraham being willing to do everything that God told him, not even law-keeping as these people would know it. But for the person of Abraham, it was the fact that he had faith in God. It was not about what Abraham did, but it was about in whom Abraham believed. And in verse 2, Paul makes it clear that if it had have been by works, then Abraham could have boasted to anyone he wanted. He could have gone and said, look at me, look at the wealth, look at my obedience, look at how good I am before God. He could have said it to everyone except one person, and that is God. Because God wouldn't have taken it. God would have said to Abraham, no, sorry, you've got it wrong. I'm not impressed by what you do or what you have. What I do is look at the faith in me that you claim. And in verse 4, Paul goes on to offer an illustration to help his readers think about this. And the illustration centers around payment for work. Let's face it, we all love that time of the month where there's a certain amount of money goes into our bank accounts or we get a check or we get cash in hand. But when we get paid for what we do, it's not as a gift, but as an obligation. A fair day's pay for a fair day's work. So what Paul does, he flips this round and he says that we cannot earn salvation through works, but rather God justifies those who place their trust in him. So they do nothing and they get their salary, which is a gift of God. It is God's grace and he credits their faith as righteousness. And he's not satisfied in keeping it with Abraham, so he moves forward to the great king of Israel as these Jews would have seen him. So he goes to David and he goes to Psalm 32. And David in Psalm 32 says, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Paul is leaving his reader with absolutely no doubt. He is telling them that the great patriarch in whom they have followed, in whom they almost worship, in whom they, they take as law and in their sense gospel as to how they are saved, by following the example of Abraham, of works and service, they will get nowhere. But by following the example that Abraham had, that faith was credited to him, 
That is the true salvation that they would know. It was about their faith in God as Abraham's faith was in God and not by the works that they would do. So at the start, Abraham is offered as a test case for his argument. And Paul knows that this is going to be an argument. He's writing to a Jewish community, worshipping in synagogues, so this letter wasn't just going to stay in Jewish, Christian Jewish house groups. These were evangelistic Jewish Christians, so they would take it to other Jews. And so he knows there's going to be arguments, and he offers the first of several anticipated questions in the second section, which is verses 9 to 12. And he considers Abraham as the father of believers. And he asks this question. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? And Paul is really now getting into the mindset of his readers. For the Jews, this was the pinnacle of where you stood before God. The circumcised group were in. The non-circumcised group were out. In other words, the circumcised were Jewish the children of Israel, God's chosen people. Uncircumcised were Gentiles, everyone else in the world. It was only this group of circumcised or of the circumcision who were entitled to be heirs of the kingdom of God. So Paul is putting right in the middle of their court this time bomb of a question that must be answered. Was it for the circumcised or for the uncircumcised also? For the Jew who had been taught by rote, there was no other answer except it's for the circumcised. That's what we're told. But Paul says, hold on a moment. Paul wants to make it very clear that the salvation plan of God has always been for everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. So he's making his readers face a difficult question. The answer is simple. It's what we've said already. This righteousness, this blessedness is for both the circumcised and uncircumcised. Circumcision does not make you inclusive to salvation as they thought it did. And the readers of Romans are startled to read Paul when he says in verse 10 that Abraham's faith was credited to him when he was uncircumcised. God made all these promises to him long before he was ever part of the covenant as it would be known in later years. And this is a major point of theology that Paul is trying to get across to them. But he is making it for the benefit of all believers, for the believers in Rome and for us here tonight. He is clearly teaching that Abraham is the father of all. And if Abraham is the father of all, therefore salvation is for all, Jew and Gentile. For Abraham's circumcision was the seal of God's promise of the inner reality of faith that brought salvation in him and didn't contribute anything to God's gift of righteousness. That's what circumcision was. It was a seal of the covenant. It was a witness of God's faithfulness and his truth. But it wasn't what saved God's people. What saved God's people was their faith in him. So in section 2, Abraham is seen as the father of all believers, the uncircumcised and the circumcised. And so we move into section 3, verses 13 to 15, where Paul takes his readers into the area of the law. 
So he's dealt with circumcision and now he moves into law. The second great pillar that they held uh, as something that they were to hold close to. And so for the Jew, including the Jewish hearers of this letter, whether they were Christians or not, they were all focusing on the law that Moses had been given. Given at Mount Sinai. This is the thing that they live for. This is the thing that they live by. This was another litmus test. Paul says, this isn't so, folks. This isn't how it's done. You may have a list of nice things in front of you that are, at first glance, quite easy to read, but it's not about law. So he again echoes that it is by faith that a person is made righteous. And in verse 14, he appears to be again anticipating an objection that would come his way. The current Jewish thinking said that God's promises of blessing were to those who would keep the law of God. Paul points out that God made no such promise. God never said, keep my law and I will save you. God gave his law to help his people know him more and depend on him. The law did not attract the saving promises of God, nor did they inspire faith in God. Law only served to show up human shortcomings and stir them up further, as Paul Barnett writes. So the law, very concisely Paul says, the law is nothing. It contributes nothing to your salvation. So let's move on. Let's get that done and dusted. And so he does in verses 16 to 22 in section 4. And he draws an important conclusion based on the previous three verses. Paul makes it clear that Abraham is father of all. Not just father as we looked at in section 2. The father of all believers. But he's the father of all. So just as Adam was the genetic father of of all. But Adam, of course, fell and fell from God's presence. Abraham is presented as the spiritual father of those who have faith in God. And we're familiar, I'm guessing, with the story of Abraham. God met with him and took him outside one night. And God said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. So shall your offspring be. Genesis 15 and verse 5. To Abraham and Sarah, this was ludicrous. As they were well on in years and Sarah was past the age of childbearing, but still Abraham and eventually Sarah would place their full trust in God, that the God who made the promise was able to keep the promise. Abraham believed that God could do the impossible. And what did this do? This belief in God developed in Abraham a stronger faith and he gave God the glory for it. It grew in him a testimony of the greatness of God. So Abraham became a greater witness of the God to whom he had faith in and whom he worshipped. And he was also fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Let's face it, if God promised you that you were going to have children in ways that were completely impossible, I think from then on in we would certainly believe what God was saying to us. So again, Paul hits his readers with this truth that it was Abraham's faith that was credited to him as righteousness, not the works that he did. And so, the last section, in verses 23 to 25, Paul concludes the passage and considers what it means in the here and the now. 
And if we haven't got it yet, Paul makes it clear once again, because the passage reads, it was credited to him. We're written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. I have stood up here before. In recent weeks, somewhere between middle of October and Christmas, and I have said that it is not by our works that we are saved, but in living faith. And you get a very interesting perspective from standing up front, because you see people agreeing with you the truth that it is, because we know the truth. And I nod my head and I go, yeah, I know the truth of that, that it is by faith that I am saved, and my works have nothing to do with it. But yet, I fall into works. I fall into thinking, well, if I do this, it'll make me look good in front of everyone else. And by merit then, it'll make me look good in front of God. I can earn God's favor. So maybe if I've slipped up a little bit on, on my personal devotions or my prayer times just haven't been as long or maybe I just haven't been as round as many people as I should be. If I do this, I can't think of anything offhand that I think can earn me favor. But if I do this, that'll get me back on track. So it is works by which I'm saved and really not by faith. Do we slip into the same mentality? It is oh so subtle. And that's why Paul in this passage says it time and time and time again that it is by faith. And for the readers of Romans... They knew full well Abraham. They had a connection with Abraham that we don't have. So it's hard for us to know the significance, the, the slap around the head with a cold fish that Paul was giving to these readers. Over the past number of days, as we've bought our newspapers, our magazines, as we've watched the television and as we've listened to the radio, we've been inundated with the reviews of 2010. And I'm sure you've watched them or heard them or read them. And they've reminded you about things like the ash cloud or the Chilean miners, the World Cup, great golfing triumphs by Irish golfers, financial crises and solutions, the change of governments and so on. And even this morning, Sunday Sequence and Radio Ulster said, well, let's look ahead to the next 12 months and see what 2011 holds for us. And so, let me tell you what they're predicting. They're predicting two royal weddings. They're predicting more financial chaos, more revelations from WikiLeaks, more papal discussion on issues within the Roman Catholic Church, and oh yes, they're predicting another ash cloud. Take it up with William Crawley if it doesn't happen. These are only speculations. 2011 will not be shaped or formed solely by the events of 2010. New things will come up in this coming year. And as we stand at the head of the year, 
And as we look into the next 12 months with plans that are already in our diaries and plans that we don't know about yet, what are we saying to ourselves? And what are we saying to God? We're going to face problems. But we're going to have opportunities. Life is going to continue on its merry little roller coaster of the highs and of the lows. And I think Paul tonight offers us help to step into 2011. The message from chapter 4 is that what we do is good for our service to God, but it does not save us. And in a way, that's a great relief. It has to be. Because it means that I can't mess it up. It means that I can't put together a, a match batch of, uh, uh, like a, a quilt put together by different uh, little patches and present it to God as an offering saying, this is the best I offer. Because anything that we offer will never be good enough for what God requires and desires. But by his grace, he says, I accept you. Paul teaches us that God's grace means that all we have to do is believe. Believe that Jesus has done it all. And in the last verse of Romans 4, we have this little concise (coughs) idea of the gospel. He, that is Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Jesus did it for us. He has done it for every generation that has gone before us and he will do it for every generation that will come into the future. And so as we stand and look into 2011, I want to challenge you as I've been challenged myself in thinking about works and about faith. I'm not a great setter of New Year's resolutions simply because they're broken normally within two weeks. So I'm not presenting this to you as a New Year's resolution. What I want to present to you is something that we can go into this week with the determination that is within us as human beings, but also with a power from God, that we will go into this week to live this year by faith. By faith alone. Faith that God is all sufficient to save us and to keep us. Faith that is not in what we do and the works of our hands, but faith that is in a risen Saviour who paid the price. He did it all for you and for me. Can we catch ourselves? Can we catch ourselves each moment of every day? So that we're not falling into those moments where we think we can do it rather than God can do it. Can we rely on him for everything? Yes, our opportunities of service where we help others in the name of Jesus. But realizing that we do it in his name and not in our own so that we can earn profit for ourselves. But that in our faith, in our faith is our credit. Where God will build it up. So that on that day, when Christ will return, we will truly be saved. And we will be in that end time, forever, perfect. May God give us all the grace to live in such a way in 2011.
Let's pray.